I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. If you're expecting to hear Dominic West reading Patrick Lee Fermer's piece on the Manny Olive Harvest, then don't worry, that will be out next week. This time, I'm talking to my colleague Daniel Saw, a senior editor at the LRB, who has a piece in the current issue of the paper on the so-called sixth taste, Kokumi. And it's possible that olive oil may get a mention this week too. So before we get to the sixth taste, or in order to get to the sixth taste, I think we need to be told the story of the, of the fifth taste, umami and how that came to be added to the four that I learned about in primary school, sweet, sour, salt and bitter. So everyone, I think, will have heard of umami, which started circulating as a big and exciting thing early this century, really. Uh, around 2010, you pick up any cookbook, you'll read about umami, that savoury, rich taste that makes food have body. You get it from uh, rich mushrooms, from tomatoes from parmesan cheese which turns out to be the most umami rich food on the planet we all like it it's the taste beyond salt sweet bitter and sour and what we probably uh, don't always know is what a long history it has because it didn't surface until fairly recently uh, it began in 1908 when a chemist at tokyo university called ikeda had the lucky opportunity to travel to Germany to study at the best biochemistry department there. And of course, he learned a lot from the great chemists there and the laboratory. But what was really exciting to him was that for the first time in his life, he tasted all sorts of food that weren't available in Japan. And of course, for hundreds of years, various things had been more than not available in Japan. Meat was banned until the late 19th century. It was a you know, place of fish. They were proud of it. Tomatoes weren't known until he got to Germany. So one of the things he'd uh, happily encountered was this, these, these wonderful rich foods, which he peculiarly was one of those people clearly who, who was very sensitive to tastes. And he thought there was something in these foods that really didn't belong to any of the categories that we know. So those four categories, because it might seem that the, that the, the sweet, sour, salty, bitter are as it were, Western categories of food. And uh, and then we discovered this. Because you think it's the other way around. You think that umami came, the the concept came to us from Japan, which of course it did. But it's interesting that it went. So in Japan in 1907, they had the same idea. It was the sweet, sour, salty, bitter. It was the same for... Yeah, it's, it had spread across the world that. But in fact, it was absolutely a Japanese concept. Because having travelled back home after his great discovery and amazing sensory experience 
what he recognized was something that wasn't available to him when he was at home. His wife, this is how the legend goes, made him a, a delicious dashi soup. And those soups are made from very, very simple ingredients, the wonders of Japanese cuisine. And usually they're, they're based, they're, the first ingredient is a kind of seaweed, a, a variety of kelp, which turns out, as we now know, to be very rich in umami. But having tasted this wonderful soup, he realized, he recognized that flavor he'd now, he'd now learned to detect in Germany. And it seemed exactly the same, but almost a purer form. So he was sure that there was something in this wonderful homemade Japanese soup that possessed a taste that was beyond beyond any of the categories. And so being a, a great chemist, he proceeded to experiment, boil down the soup until did various things, until he was left with a, a few crystals, which when tasted on their own, had an absolutely pure, as he called it, umami taste. The word was totally his invention. It was a, it was devolved from a from a da- Japanese word, but effectively meant delicious. And having done this and found a way to prepare it, he realized there was money in this. He, with the help of the Suzuki company, a big Japanese, effectively now pharmaceutical company, started manufacturing a product called Ajinomoto and set up a company called Ajinomoto. And the chem- and the, really the I mean the chemistry obviously is more complicated this than this, mm. but in the way that. We taste salts because of the sodium ions and salty things. Sodium chloride, well, then those other alkali metals like sodium have that stimulate that taste, taste salty. Hydrogen ions stimulate the sourness, so acidic things. And, of course, sugars stimulate the sweetness. So there, there is a, I mean, obviously very complicated, but you can describe simply biochemical, I'm not sure if reaction is quite the word, but biochemistry happens on our tongues and that's where these flavors come from and there was a chemical there absolutely was a chemical this wasn't something that was completely fanciful and invented um and we see in fact we'll see we we see as the story goes on that this sort of process happens everyone's determined to discover the taste and then through long periods of science discover that there is a chemical biological basis for it in this case what the chemical is, is glutamate, which almost every food on the planet contains quite a lot of. Wheat has got some ridiculous percentage of it in the protein. Usually, I should preface this by saying I'm not in any way a scientist. I've done my best. This is, this is part of the job at the LRB. We're completely inexpert at almost anything, but, but you work at it. and So I'm sure people will correct me. But glutamate is, is part of the, the protein of, of all sorts of things. But you can't detect it ordinarily until it is broken down into its free form and short little bits of molecules that do in exactly the same way as salt and sour, as you say, there's the acid, there's the, the sodium, which uh, affect actual taste receptors in, in the mouth. And free glutamate that exists in various foods in its pure form, like the seaweed, has a very powerful effect like that. But what have people have known for thousands of years without knowing, of course, the chemistry of any of it, was that various human process of human intervention produce more of the free glutamate that tastes so delicious. And usually that's a process of fermentation or aging. So the older the cheese, the more of it there is, the more of the free glutamate that's released. Why Japan was so lucky is that quite a lot of their the things they use naturally, the, the seaweed, shiitake mushrooms, are natural, not just in glutamate, but in some other compounds that intensify 
the flavour. But also, of course, as part of the, the cuisine, you have the dried fish flakes, bonito, that come from the bonito fish and, and tuna. And the process of drying, which is a fantastically attractive process where it's left to dry and then re-dry, it totally enriches this momami taste, particularly when combined with, with other elements. So it absolutely exists in the same way as the others. But we didn't know that as well until, until, until quite a little bit. <laughs> okay, but so did Ikeda... Did Ikeda know that it was that what he'd isolated? He did. He did. He did. And he, having done a few of the experiments, he knew that glutamic acid, which had been discovered in the late 19th century as a thing, was the main component. He needed to find a way to be able to add it to food, to make it easily transportable, dissolvable, so you could put it in soup and have the effect. It was a very, very simple salt, monosodium glutamate. And of course, this sort of cultural legacy makes it sound an incredibly chemical and unattractive thing. But if you think about it, sodium chloride, if you put it like that, that we familiar with, feel safe, even if you use those words, it's really no no different. It's <laughs> that chemist joke about this substance called oxydihydride, which is an incredibly powerful solvent. It's found in you get it in your lungs, it kills you. You, it, it's the most power, one of the most powerful solvents on earth. It's found in all tumours in the human body. It's this clear, colourless, odourless liquid. Would you drink it? And you describe it in those terms. You think that sounds terrible and it's just water. Fantastic. I never knew this. So these all things. And exactly the same thing happens with, with the glutamic acid. Uh, it's not only in, in, in plants and uh, the body is full of it. And it's in fact essential for our functioning. It, it's used to sort of transform various other proteins. And it's, in fact, a neurotransmitter. It exists in our, in our brains it's, uh, and it helps the, the nervous system do what, it, do what it does. So we couldn't do without it. It's just you only taste it as this special flavor uh, when it exists in this free form. I suppose we should probably go on to, the, to how it began to circulate through the amazing offices of the Ajinomoto Company. Yeah. It took a long time for them to, to, to start to get it around, but various effects that yeah, you had to market this stuff once it was made. And some fantastic work was done by this by a LLB contributor, Jordan Sand, who trawled through the archives of the now very large Ajinomoto company, which was founded in 1908 after Ikeda's work, is now a trillion, has annual revenues of a trillion yen, around $9 billion. But it was a long, long struggle to get this thing to be adopted. They started, of course, in Japan. None of the food manufacturers being very traditional, being very proud of their ancient techniques, wanted to use it. Restaurants didn't. But then they had as thing, various as Japanese societies started to change, as I understand. They, there was a modern westernized thing. They started to advertise in Japanese women's magazines. The modern housewife could use these at that time presented as a as a as a as an aspect of modernity a scientific wonder this this thing that could transform your food and it started to circulate in Japan and then they they spread they went to all the ex Japanese colonies and eventually in the 40s after just after the war to America where as we probably all know America and western Europe chinese food started to spread it became popular and monosodium glutamate was an essential seasoning. And 
by that point, and as the 40s, 50s, 60s went, went on, became used across the world as a, as a quick way to get that flavour that was essential for Chinese food and all across the world. But then there was, as it were, there was the backlash against it, wasn't it? That this that monosodium glutamate came to be seen to be dangerous or almost toxic. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, my experience of this is this sort of slightly received opinion. And it, I think we can probably, I mean, maybe that's the way to look at it is, is our sort of just general what you've kind of absorbed from, from our surroundings. I uh, remember being brought up when I, when I was, the Chinese restaurants were an exciting place to go as a kid. And I had that feeling, you go to a Chinese restaurant, I was a bit of an allergic sort of child. I have an egg allergy, which has been a, a crippling thing throughout my life. Uh, no, no desserts for me and stuff. But Chinese restaurants were fun. And yeah, I did have this weird, tingling, uncomfortable feeling. You felt a bit like one of my allergic reactions after coming to one of these restaurants. And it was confirmed by people you talk to, you know, Chinese restaurant, full of MSG, avoid it, bad for you. Well, it might have been, it might have been the chilli. I mean, it might have been the chilli, it might have been all sorts of shortcuts that they use. And, it, and it's, it, it's hard to say. But it turns out that this, I was going to say myth, because various, I mean, more than, uh, more than several uh, stages of analysis have, have shown that this largely is a myth. I mean, people do have food intolerances, but as we've said, this is a very natural ingredient. It's a. It's but if you actually, if your body, anyone who actually had a real intolerance to to MSG would have a possibly have a serious problem. A serious problem, and I'm this is another work I haven't done, but it's clearly very very rare. And in fact, some of the studies, why they're interesting, is that they included double-blind placebo studies where people who claimed to or you know perfectly legitimately didn't like going to Chinese restaurants because they felt this effect afterwards were given either as they didn't know which either MS the food laced with MSG or a placebo and had the same reaction to the placebo thing in heavy numbers so uh, it's something that relies on an assumption as the evidence seems to show but the curious part of this story is, is how this, this idea started to circulate that avoid cheap Chinese restaurants at all cost. It began in the late 1960s, in 1968. And if you look right back, it began with a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine from a Chinese doctor who'd moved to the States called Robert Ho Man Kwok, who wrote into the journal, and said that he had experienced, after his various visits to Chinese restaurants, discomfort, palpitations, various sort of things. This sort of odd syndrome that, that he personally suffered, and it deserved further research. This was followed up in the letters column, as, as we're all familiar with. It sparks a debate. And he found that colleagues uh, across the world and respectable North American doctors agreed that it was a thing that needed investigation. This escalated very quickly and soon Nader was was trying to legislate to remove MSG, which by this time was used as an additive in, in all sorts of manufactured and processed food. Uh, it was used in baby food. Nader thought this should absolutely be banned. And people wrote letters to the president to say, make sure you don't eat it. And various things 
you know, nothing could be done about it at this stage. And the backlash continued for 30 years um, and more. And it, as we know, still lingers. Yeah, and there, I mean, there were experiments, weren't there, that, I mean, you write about one of these that, that showed it was bad, that they sort of injected mice with massive doses of MSG in it, and it had bad effects on their brains. But yeah, that was very quickly taken as proof. And then, but then the unheard of counter to that further experiments or people looked at his his methodology and this guy was called Olney found that he'd injected them directly and of course you tend not these poor little mice you tend in our experience to eat the stuff rather than you know mainline it into your veins the doses he was giving them to these tiny little mice were effectively enough to cause the effect if you were a horse and what's more you know, newborn mice happen to be quite different biologically from newborn children. Uh, and this stuff wouldn't have the effect if it was given in the kind of doses we use. It's a different thing, but I mean, salt, sodium chloride salt is is essential for, for human life. But obviously, if you eat, I mean, eating too much salt is fantastically bad for you. So I mean, there's, it's also possible, yeah. There's a potential that, it, that a large amount of, and, in, and indeed, if you inject as much as, you know, as, as, a, as a horse <laughs> could take, that's not going to be good for you. But the same is, as you say, exactly true, true of everything. Uh, I should say, just going back to, uh, I don't want this all to be too scientific, especially because I'm going to be proved wrong at every corner. But I should say that there is no need to, to, to take, to eat or drink things containing glutamic acid our body it's so it's so prevalent in in our body that we manufacture it our, ourselves you're breaking it down from from other components so you don't need it presumably enormous amounts aren't great for you but that's not what tends to happen i'm presenting myself as a great defender of this stuff i mean i think you know i'd i'd rather not sprinkle the the, the powder that comes in its little red bottle it yeah do it from scratch if you if you can. But and I understand people who who don't want to add stuff. But I strongly believe it's it's not an evil. <laughs> and the um and then the story there was this sort of further twist that in 2017 someone claimed this guy Howard Steele, a retired orthopedic surgeon, claimed to have invented Homancock. That's right. So somebody was researching this this. Uh, great little professor of, uh, of rhetoric when she was slightly younger at that stage looking through uh, well having been slightly alerted to it was looking through old issues of the New England Journal of Medicine from the 60s and this was in 2017 and it, it all looked a little bit suspicious and uh, among other things Homan Kwok was affiliated with a non-existent institution it seemed and she'd written about this and had found it quite funny that the, the subsequent letters all the way back then and the thing that started everything off really became madly excessive. There's clearly a sort of tradition of jokes uh, among these doctors. I mean, they're very funny doctors. You should always bear that in mind. And what happened to having published a paper on this, she suddenly got a phone call from a man called Howard Steele, who was a retired orthopaedic surgeon, 96-year-old retired orthopaedic surgeon, left a voicemail to say, I am Homan Kwok. And he had a great explanation for this. He had, in the, in the 60s, had a mate. It was all a prank. He'd gone to eat in a Chinese restaurant. His friend had bet him that he couldn't get a letter published in a prestigious medical journal. So they'd eaten out in a Chinese restaurant and he sent in this letter 
signed it home and quack to sound relatively Cantonese. And then the story began. And this is amazingly, everything, everything fits about, about this story. And it's just an extraordinary thing that this one, this one prank from the 60s caused a legacy of 50 years. Just going back to Ajinomoto, their revenues dropped radically. MSG was used less in, in Japan even. You know, sad thing, joke, but... But he said, isn't it what he said? Sorry, I am the author of Homan Kwok. I am the author of Homan Kwok. But then it later turned out that maybe he wasn't because that, there was a, wasn't there an episode of the This American Life podcast? This is why it gets fantastic. That's right, that's right. So This American Life followed up. Uh, by this point, another doctor who... <laughs> who was called Robert Homer and Quark, as you, you'll find when you look at it, had died in 2014. There was an obituary for him. Another respected doctor. Uh, so, you know, he couldn't be asked whether he had written the letter. Howard Steele, uh, at 96, was still around to insist that he had. He died later that year at the age of 97. So by the time this was looked into, it was really impossible to ask either of them. What had been going on? And all we know is that somewhere Howard Steele was a prankster and either he played the joke in 1968 or he did it for 50 years later. Or played the joke later. So there's either a, a plain hoax or a hoax within a hoax. But, you know, either story works and we'll, we'll never yeah, know. But in any case, there was, there was this story or this letter to the New England Journal of Medicine that got a lot of traction. It spread a lot of anxiety about... MSG, which seems to be an unfounded, but it still had the effect that people stopped buying it. And that brings us to this question of, the, of, of Kokumi, that the sixth taste, which came out of the, it was an effect of the commercial damage that was done by the anti-MSG movement. If it were, well, maybe you can't call it a movement, but yeah. Yeah, before we go, but briefly before we go on to this, I mean, I think there's a, there's a sort of another crucial step in the story. If you look at it all from the perspective of Ajinomoto Co., which I became very, very fond of its, its, its struggles. I mean, in the face of something that was prompted by a hoax in the 60s that, that then escalated worldwide, they had to do something. And this was still at the stage when, although everyone agreed that this flavour was added, wonderful things happened if you ate this kind of food. The science about it didn't exist we didn't know how it came about, and it wasn't yet classified as a flavour. It w was crucial to the people who were trying to market the stuff that it gained some respectability, especially in this environment when everyone thought it was a horrible additive that was bad for you. So various scientific conferences took place. And then in 1985 in Hawaii, a gathering of biochemists from various places got together and they agreed, looking at the biochemistry of it, that umami was a fifth taste. And that immediately allowed it to regain some respectability since MSG was, as you can see, delivered pure umami. Uh, and that was a great move. But of course, as these things, unfortunately, you look at pharmaceuticals, it often turns out that these things are funded by someone. And a lot of the biochemists who were summoned to Hawaii to have this great time in 1985 were biochemists from Ajinomoto. So you could say that there was... Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean sort of in, in defense, <laughs> slight defense of that, I mean, it doesn't mean... I mean, to take these that um, Jennifer Lemazuria, who 
who was the one who got the the researcher who got the phone call from from Howard Steele, works at Colgate University. And of course, Colgate also funded a lot of the research into the effects of fluoride on your teeth. But that doesn't mean that fluoride. I mean, it's it is still a fact that fluoride makes your teeth stronger. Good point. Yes. There are anti-fluoride conspiracy theorists who believe otherwise. But and of course, that also doesn't mean that these large corporations funding this research are inherently benign. It just means that they're out to make money by selling us things we need. Absolutely. That often has the malign effect of denying those things to people who need them but can't afford them. And of course, COVID vaccines are a, a glaring example of that. But anyway, so this, so another one I was looking up, Kokumi, although I haven't got there yet. We come to it later. But there, anyway, there's some really interesting research that cats have this taste perception too. And it turns out that this research was funded by Mars Pet Care. And in fact, the scientists all worked at Mars Pet Care. But of course it would, because only someone who made pet food would bother to fund scientific research into the taste perceptions of cats. But but it does seem to be, there does seem to be a consensus, right, not only among the scientists of that 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 umami is a is a fifth flavor and there and no indeed the science the science exists you use the word flavor and i think it's important i mean it, that some of the the oddness of this is that when people talk about this it's it's very clearly there's always a distinction and it's kind of interesting when you look at different languages that the the distinction exists there's always an equivalent for the word taste and the, and the word flavor and the way that this sort of taxonomy works of those familiar four tastes and the familiar now fifth taste is that they are very specifically tastes and all sorts of various other things that you sense with uh, when you eat food. And of course, there's the heat that comes from chilies and, and the, the sense that something might be fatty uh, that you, you're absolutely aware of. Don't for a reason that isn't exactly arbitrary, but when you look at the discussions that take place between these scientists, aren't exactly not arbitrary either. You have to do a few extra things if you're the 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 molecule that does this stuff to qualify as a taste. It's a sort of special accolade. And, yeah. and, and yeah, and of course, a lot of flavour famously comes through. Well, famously, a lot of flavour comes through smell. Famously, because I learned it at primary school. But you know, there is this that idea you have the four now five tastes on your tongue and the rest of flavor comes through the nose but then again that isn't that, that as you but then you say that you know yeah. the, the chemist yeah. exactly and it's not it's not quite and a very fresh olive oil as well when burning the back of your throat so. absolutely and it's not quite when well, you say the back of your throat because it's not quite as simple as that thing we learned from from primary school because these sensations there are a lot of mouth sensations as well as the stuff that comes through your nose that that detect flavor but for whatever reason that I still, you know, don't feel that I'm fully qualified to to express, are detected in the mouth and are in fact detected by some of these sensors that, that exist. But if you want the official answer, they're not tastes. And But actually that, that really interests me because to talk about what you're handed down from primary school, another thing I, I'm familiar with, and I, I sort of suspect I should have asked around a little bit more, but if we think about... Um, in my head, I'm drawing a little diagram. If we think about what we, what we, how we imagine we, we detect tastes and we think the tongue's important to it, I remember, and you know, this is again some sort of inherited cultural memory, you couldn't say where it comes from, a little sort of map of the tongue that would show you various parts of the tongue 
a few bits at the front, a few bits at the back, and then there's a little tip that would be more sensitive to one taste or another. Yeah, so you put a bitter pill on the tip of your tongue because there aren't any bitterness. That's right. the sweet sense, it's not the bitterness. <laughs> but I, I could taste the bitterness of that of that um paracetamol yeah, yeah yeah and as we all know if you're if you're told something you, you that's exactly how you experience it or you tend to anyway what what's amazing about this map of the tongue and i think probably it's, it's you quite readily assume it's presumably not as simple as that and absolutely it isn't as simple as that but that that too has its own its own history it's always very appealing to have this neat taxonomy you can see the map of the tongue but when you look at it it's a bit like you know it, it's sort of almost exactly equivalent to Victorian phrenology or something. Here you've got this, you know, this this part of your body, and this bit does that, and this bit does that, and but it but it turns out that 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 in itself had its its own transformation. There was a a guy in again curiously interesting similar time, the very turn of the twentieth century, a guy called David Hainig, who presented this this little map as part of a part of a book and wasn't much noticed at the time. He wasn't claiming that these things were were absolute, that this bit of the tongue was solely responsible for detecting this taste, etc., etc. But it carried on down the generations. In the 40s, again, significant turning points. I've just sort of, <laughs> it's like a pure coincidence, I'm sure. And another guy called Edwin, Edwin G. Boring, I think, popularised a map of the, the tongue that, presented the same things and people understood it and the way he presented it is an, is an absolute absolute truth this bit of the tongue does that this bit of the tongue does that and I think this sort of equivalent thing that's just a very sort of a very pure version of, of what seems to happen with all this quite a lot it, it becomes entrenched because actually those you know you're told that you could see your taste buds the sort of the bumps on your tongue yeah actually each of those bumps which has a name I can't remember has tens of thousands of taste receptors. Yeah, yeah. I wish I'd I'd had the, the microscope to, to know these things, but they talk about the little papillae that, that have a particular a particular shape. But to move on to Kakumi, because it is it is related. It's related to this idea of the mouth. Now I think what's interesting is you can choose you, it really depends on how you approach these things. But and I I approach the whole business from a sheer excitement rather than anything else. But if you were to imagine beginning as a as a skeptic, if you just look again at the fortunes of, of this company of Ajinomoto, where they began at the turn of the 20th century, had a difficult time, but they had incredibly invented this this taste that kept them going until until they had new, extremely rocky times in, in the 60s and beyond that was spread all over the world. It became an enormous company, kept them going. Then they had tough times. And look, you've gone through 100 years. How do you get to the next 100? It's a bit like Silicon Valley, you know. Is this unicorn, is this trillion dollar company, it has to transform itself uh, into an Italian new thing. And it happened that at the beginning of this century, slowly, slowly, and it took a little while until it percolated into the public perception. And it still hasn't really quite got there but they're they're trying their best a new word popped up called kukumi and i started seeing it you there were articles about it in the wall street journal and various places kukumi the sixth taste 
And when you look at it from the perspective of the company, you, you think ingenious, they've discovered yet another. And, and that fundamentally is an exciting thing. Is there a mysterious sixth thing beyond, beyond what we understand? And when you look at the way this thing is described, it's it's very hard for me even to begin to begin to to know what they you know what they mean by it, and it's sort of the the terminology is wonderful, but the the Japanese scientists translating it presumably uh, into terms that we might be able to to receive call it mouthfulness and lingeringness and continuity, which to me basically sounds like eating cotton wool or something, but they are characteristics of of rich food. But again, another simplifying thing went on in that although you pick up a a food magazine and be told it was a sixth taste, they have decided it doesn't qualify as a taste, even though there are taste receptors that detect this particular substance. But for the food manufacturers, what this thing offers, Kokumi, is a magical, much as MSG was, uh, potentially, and we'll see over the coming years whether it really is as lucrative as it as it was it suggests it might. It adds this sense of richness to food, even if they're effectively not very rich at all. Even if they're low in salt, low in fat, all those things that make things taste good. And given that, if you're just looking at the money, low fat, low salt, low sugar food is what's bought in increasingly large numbers because people want to be healthy. You can get those crisps which contain absolutely no salt and it's really weird because you eat three or four of them and then you feel you've had enough. I've never I tried mean, the this. Extent to I really which... don't want to. What does it do? What, the no salt the crisps? No salt. Is it just like eating carbs? Well, it just means you don't want to eat very many of them. You have a few and you think, oh, I've had enough now. So that the way that that idea of flavour enhancement, you see it on the ingredients of so many... You know, there are all those artificial ones, but also salt itself as a flavour enhancer. You add salt or, or, you know, or MSG, all these things that you, you add them to things and they make... They intensify other flavours and that's what Kokumi does and it works on particular flavours. It doesn't, I think it doesn't affect the, the sweet flavour, but it intensifies, as, as I'm told, it intensifies other flavours, it intensifies umami. One curious thing, again, it's a question of what classifies as, as received knowledge but it does look to me, as I understand it, that quite a lot of the process of enhancing of flavours rather than the rather than the sensing of a particular flavour or taste is still not understood. I, it may be more understood in the case of salt, but but certainly isn't in the case of kakumi. What it is, in effect, two things are going on. You taste a particular thing with. Let's go back to umami with umami. But umami itself also has the effect of intensifying. As with salt, has its own flavour, and it, but it intensifies the other flavours. Yeah. But kukumi has no flavour of its own. As it has far no as we know. Of its own. Yeah. But then, or, well, yeah, as far taste, as we know, yeah. even though it is detected by taste receptors, and the part of this I don't understand, and would love to hear from people who can explain it to me in, in, in very simple layman's terms, is, uh, is that it is detected by taste receptors. It's detected by the calcium receptors on the tongue, but for some reason, not at a particular threshold that allows it to qualify. And presumably because you, you having eaten it, you, you, can't, you, you effectively can't say you've, you've had it, uh, not at a level to qualify it as a, as a taste. But so the, the, the calcium receptors, in the way that, it can be said that you know saltiness is the f- of sodium and those and other and other metals in that group of the periodic table. Those things taste salty. The acids taste sour. Do calcium salts taste the same as sodium salts, or is there a different? Is there a particular 
Or is it, that, or, is it, or is it that we can't really taste it, but we can because it's kakumi, but we don't? There are specifically calcium receptors which, which detect things that other receptors don't. And one of the curious things about it in the whole debate, it's always very nice to have the neat taxonomy, but this debate still exists. There are questions of whether the pataxia, perhaps there is, a, there is a sixth taste and perhaps we've got it wrong. But various things are posited, including the, the suggestion that you were talking about olive oil, but that there is one thing that could qualify as a taste is, is a fatty taste, which is detected by calcium receptors. So forget kakumi, fat. And which Aristotle said was one of the eight. He thought there were eight tastes. Did he? Eight? Well, you see how much further ahead he was than anyone else. What are his eight tastes? Well, well sort of. That the idea that the, the two primary tastes are sweet and bitter. And then he sort of, those are the fundamental ones. The two or the two primary or the un... So they're poles, as it were. Yeah, and then you kind of move in and then you have the secondary tastes were oily and salty. And oily was closer to sweet and salty closer to bitter. Then I mean, in between, well, it depends how you translate them, but these pungent, harsh, astringent and sour. And clearly some of those must include the sort of you know, chilli, menthol, olive oil, those chemesthetic things which we don't count as taste, but Aristotle did count those as taste. We don't count as them, but that's right. And these things are inherited. That taxonomy is incredibly attractive and obviously... The, the coolest is Aristotle. But it's interesting to see it's how it's handed down. These things clearly exist. And and what's interesting, I suppose, if you look at Ayurvedic thinking about, about what we eat and medicine and stuff, they have six six tastes. Astringent is one of them. That's a, it's a more Aristotelian way of looking at it. But, but, but then oiliness, but you're now saying that some people think that oiliness or fattiness is in itself. Oiliness, well, they like calling it fattiness. No, none of it's very attractive, but it's, it's the same thing. Um, oil, fat, yeah. Well, I think, I think, yeah, the Greek word is, well, lipid, which is quite nice, because it sounds like limpid. But anyway. I mean, it shows how interesting, how important the terminology is. If you think of what, what the story has been about the fate of, of, of MSG, if it had only been called umami from the first place, it's, you know, the brilliance of, of Ikeda. If, uh, if, it, if it circulated at the, that of the century, this you know, wonderful exotic orientalizing, if people are, this has the effect on people, you know, who knows what would have happened? Big mistake. So cleverer things happening now. Let's call it Kakumi rather than, I can't even begin to say the name of the chemical compound, but it's got three bits to it. So don't put that on the bottle. But, that's, but that also comes to this question of, the, as it all are, sense perception. I mean, the fact that we still can't agree what colours are. And it's quite actually when, when Aristotle's introducing the question of taste, he says, as with colour, because he's, he's, he's already explained how we perceive colours. And really, flavours are, are the same thing, or tastes, in just the same way as, as sight, which he seemed to be presenting as a kind of, so therefore we can understand it. But it's more, but it's actually, it's, it's as unstraightforward as that. And also yeah. that you, I mean, as you talked about at the beginning with that, you know, that the, even your conscious preconceptions have a massive effect on what you're tasting. <laughs> it's like a ridiculous example. If I once drank, someone brought me a cup of coffee, or I thought they brought me a cup of coffee, and I drank it, it was absolutely revolting. It was so sweet. They said, like, all this sugar in it. It was horrible. And then in the very last sip, I realised it was actually hot chocolate. And it was actually a perfectly nice cup of hot chocolate. But because I'd drunk it, believing it to be coffee, I'd found it, it was sort of undrinkably disgusting. Also. Very interesting. This is like looking at a duck rabbit. Yes. We are able to fool. I'm not sure how, what kind of sentence this is exactly. But there's a sense in which we are able to fool our senses. Even if you think, here is this you get down to biochemistry of of these chemicals on the tongue and this is it. And yet, by the time it's got to our brains, there's 
so much else going on there. And if you want to make billions of dollars with by circulating food additives, it's exactly that trickery that you exploit. Yeah. Including what you name them. Including what you name them. I think I need to go and get some lunch after all this. Daniel Saw, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Daniel Saw's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Seamus Perry on D.H. Lawrence and Marina Warner on Beryl Gilroy. <laughs>